What if everything you thought of health and wellness suddenly changed due to a hidden breathing problem that you were unaware of that affects every system in your body? Improper breathing habits are often overlooked in medicine. I'm Dr. Jenny from the Hobson Institute, and this is The Breathing Lab. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Jennifer Hobson from The Breathing Channel and the Hobson Institute. I am so happy today to have James Nestor, the author of the book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. James is a journalist that has been researching breathing and breathing techniques for the past several years, and I'm excited to have him on the Breathing Channel to share with you all the knowledge that he's learned from all this research, very interesting experiences he has, he has made for himself. So James, thank you so much for being here. So, you know, everyone I've come across with breathing issues and people that come to me, they all have a story. They all have a reason why they get into breathing and breathing retraining and trying to help themselves. Could you share with us what, what made you want to write this book? What was it about your situation? I think it was a couple things. Um, one is I had had some pretty interesting experiences practicing different breathing techniques that no one could really explain. Uh, I talked to my doctor about it, talked to other medical professionals, and I couldn't really describe what was happening to my body. My father-in-law is a pulmonologist, so he's studying breathing, or, or at least the lungs, and, and how they're affected during different ways of breathing all the time. And he couldn't answer those questions either. But it was really until I met freedivers. These are people who had commanded this will and this ability to take these extremely big breaths, uh, change the shape of their bodies and dive down to incredible depths, 200, 300, 400 feet on a single breath of air for seven, eight, nine minutes at a time. And they told me that once you harness this art of breathing, you can not only dive very deep for very long, you can do so many other things. And that's when I got more interested in it, that there could be a missing piece of health here and it could be tied to breathing. I wrote this down. How does one master the art of breathing? What did they say, these free drivers? I mean, that I, I have down that you, you said 12 minutes someone was able to be underwater. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a long time. How did they say, what did they do? Well, if, if you looked at their bodies, they had these huge lungs, right? Enormous lungs. And these, these people weren't born this way. They were, there's tall people, short people, small people, large people. I mean, every imaginable type of person had learned how to do this. So they said that this is not some genetic thing. This is by the power of will, by breathing in certain ways, we can drastically affect the physical shape of our bodies. And by once we control breathing in that capacity, we can then go on and do other things. We can help heal ourselves of chronic illnesses, which, which we know is, is absolutely true. We can heat ourselves in cold weather, which is true. And we can do a whole bunch of other stuff um, on levels of athletic endurance that no one thought possible. So it was really all tied to breathing. And yet breathing is something that the vast majority of us never, ever think about. Right. And, and you know, you're, you said your father-in-law was a pulmonologist. I, I've dealt with many. I've tried to get into the field of breathing more on the, the Western medicine side. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a physical therapist, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a TMJ head and neck PT that has seen problems with jaws, 
for 20 years. And it wasn't until my kids had a problem with narrow jaws at four and two, I went to a pediatric dentist who you mentioned in the book, Dr. Kevin Boyd. And Kevin, we are colleagues and friends. Um, he said, Jenny, you need to expand these kids. You know, they're, they're four and two. And I'm like, okay, that's a little extreme. But I went to go to another dentist to, to get a second opinion by an orthodontist. They took a, took a lateral CEP x-ray and the tonsils were huge. These kids weren't sick, but they were a little hyperactive. And I didn't realize their mouths were open all the time. And here I am, this PT that does TMJ work. And you know, you don't always see it, when you have different hats on. I'm a, I'm a mom too, you know, and when I come home, it's like the PT hat comes off, but they needed to adenoidectomy, tonsillectomy, and it was until I met Joy Moeller, who's the head of the AOMT, that basically taught me we can train this. Not only that, I learned that I was also a mouth breather and tongue-tied, you know, and I kind of always ignored yawning that I was doing all the time and I was sleeping eight hours, but I was yawning all the time in the mornings, things like that, that you just cold hands and feet. People don't realize these are breathing symptoms because they get used to them. And the majority of people I know are go, 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 and don't pay attention. So the, the free divers were really where you kind of started getting an interest in this, right? Breathing. Yeah, I spent a few years with them working on a book called Deep, which was looking at the human connection to the ocean from the very surface to the very bottom of the deepest sea. And But it was not focused so much on breathing at all. It was looking at freediving in some capacities, but, but more the act of freediving and not the process through which you have to adapt your body in order to dive. So I kept collecting notes the whole way because I kept meeting these people with these incredible stories. And so at the end of that process, um, several years ago, I started putting those notes together and I thought I had a pretty good view of where I was gonna go in this story um, and in this book. And then about six months later, I uh, just took a very severe left turn. When I discovered Kevin Boyd's work, I discovered Mariana Evans' work, when I discovered that all of these morphological changes have occurred in our faces so that so many of us just can't breathe properly. Even if we wanted to, we, there is an anatomical problem. And that absolutely was just a, a hammer over the head to learn that and, and to also learn how no one was really talking about this at all was, was fascinating. Yeah. So to, to share with the audience, you're talking about the University of Pennsylvania skulls that you had observed and looked at that were pre-industrial before the, you know, we started making so much processed foods. And I think before women started working so much too, like, I, I think that's part of it that women started working and then children, we stopped breastfeeding that much. We stopped cooking the way, you know, off the, off the earth. Um, but these, Mariana Evans and Boyd did, have, have been researching these skulls. And can you tell the audience what they're finding in the difference of these skulls? Mm -hmm. And how does that affect breathing in general? Yeah, if, if anyone doubts this, and I certainly did at the beginning, what, what Marianne Evans told me, she said, just look at an old skull. Uh, anything 500 years on back. Doesn't matter if it's 500 years old, 5,000 years old, 50,000 years old, 500,000 years old. That skull is going to have straight teeth. These, these people did not need wisdom teeth extracted. They didn't need braces. They didn't need Invisalign. They didn't need Smile Direct, any of that. They all had straight teeth. 
And why is it now that 90% of us have crooked teeth? And how this suddenly came on, it just went viral around 400, depending on, on where you're looking, 400, 300 years ago, just spread out all over. And, and they explained to me that the problems of, of having crooked teeth are because our mouths have grown too small. Another problem of having a mouth that's too small is you have a smaller airway. So it's harder to take those breaths in and out. And this is one of the reasons why so many of us snore, why so many of us have sleep apnea, why so many of us have respiratory problems. And from what I've found, I, I tried to find a, a, a critic of this. I said, oh, this must be a hypothesis. This must be your theory of it. But it's not because it's all in the skeletal record. You can see the nasal apertures of these old skulls and they are huge. And then you look at a modern skull and they have completely shrunk. So to me, this was basic geometry. But again, what was shocking wasn't that this had happened to us. It's that no, nobody was talking about it um, and how these changes have vastly affected our health. And it's, it is shocking. It is shocking. And what's interesting is there was a study before your study, and we're going to get to your study because I think that's amazing what you did. Um, the monkey experiment by Havitz, a monkey experiment. The, the two years, can you share a little bit of these poor monkeys? What happened to these monkeys and what happened after, you know, they unplugged their noses? Sure. So in the 70s and 80s, a researcher by the name of Emil Harvold, uh, right up from me at uh, University of San Francisco, thought it might be an interesting idea to plug the noses of monkeys with silicon so deep that they couldn't ever take them off and see what happened to their faces when they adopted to mouth breathing, because there had been so much anecdotal evidence that mouth breathing was creating skeletal changes in the face, and it was affecting breathing, because the more you go like this, the more the airway is going to be blocked, and to me, his, the, the data is one thing, but the pictures say, tell, tell the entire story there, and it was awful, it was so awful, uh, for a number of reasons, because of these poor monkeys, but also such a clear reflection of what's happened to our own species. I mean, you see these monkeys who are just very yeah. gaunt, very long face, droopy, Yep. And you just look around on the street and you're going to see the same thing. And for us to have considered that this is normal, that snoring's normal, crooked teeth are normal, sleep apnea, none of these things are normal. <laughs> it's just they're so widespread that they become accepted as normal, but they are not. And to me, it's the, the proof of how injurious sleep apnea and snoring no one can refute that. Christian Guillemot down at uh, Stanford spent 50 years looking at not even snoring, but any wheezing or constriction in the throat can have serious problems, neurological problems, physical problems. And the vast majority of us have that. And what I've found is so many of the, the issues that people have begin with their breathing, begin by breathing improperly, including metabolic issues, again, as I said, neurological issues, ADHD, and um, that it was this thing buried underneath so many other studies and disciplines, but nobody was, was looking at the core issue of this. And again, what I think is, is so exciting right now is once we have this science out, no one's really denying it. People are just like, well, of course, that's, that's what it is. Um, right. What we do about it's another thing. You know, it's one thing to keep someone on 12 different drugs for 12 different ailments, and another thing to heal that core problem and have them be off all of their medication, which I've seen time and time again. 
Well, it, it, I just feel like what you stirred up through all this research is not new, right? It keeps coming back. And I'm like, when is it going to stick and, and affect the, the people that can make a difference in, in the, the wide population? It's, you know, I talked to ENTs. There's a few that get it. There's a few. And those are the ear, nose, and throat, you know, docs. You know, I, to me, if we could have them understand a little bit about the function of breathing and, you know, if there's noise, if there's mouth breathing, if there's noise, if there's over breathing, are we looking at how much volume is going in and out? You know, I know that you spoke with Patrick McNone. He's one of my mentors. I'm a, a buteco breathing instructor. I, I don't classify my 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 um, background as anything in general. I'm just trying to keep learning. And the reason I loved your book was because you accept and appreciate every single type of style of, of retraining. And they're all okay. If they make improved, you know, if they improve your health, if they improve symptoms and they're not hurting you, I cannot stay rigid in my thought. I need to keep growing. It, just comment on that because I know you. there's so many techniques and I'd love to go over a couple, but what could you say about that, James? So my, my job as a journalist, as someone who writes about science a lot, is not to pick and juice things I, I want to believe or not believe. So I spent years and years researching this book and looking at everything I could, trying to be completely objective regardless of, of you know, where my inclination was. And then to start there and look at the science and talk to the experts and look at the studies and go to medical libraries and spend my time looking at this stuff. So, you know, I, uh, some breathing techniques like holotropic breath work, I know it's been very effective for people. Uh, I've talked to the clinicians who have used it. We still don't know how it works. Um, we still don't have a scientific explanation of how it works, and that's fine. Uh, to, to me, that doesn't mean it's, it's necessarily less effective if these people are obviously getting benefits from it. So, but with other breathing techniques, such as breathing slow and breathing less, to me that the science is irrefutable. And if you look at it from a biochemical standpoint, from a physiological standpoint, from a neurological standpoint, you want your body to be balanced. You don't want to have to strive for every breath. You don't want your heart to beat faster than it needs to beat. So, so we, we know all these things are bad, but it's all in separate silos in medicine, right? A, card, a cardiologist knows if your heart is beating too fast, that's bad news. But a pulmonologist may not be looking at that as right. something related to breathing. Um, and I'm not blaming anyone. My father-in-law does amazing work. He's, he's taking rid of, like getting rid of pathologies, lung cancer, right. emphysema, and does incredible work. Same with the cardiologist. So there's no blame game here. But what I think is important is for these different silos to start to cross-pollinate and look at the core issues behind all of these things, because they're there. And I think that this realization is starting to happen. And Stanford is doing this huge new initiative in breathing, uh, very big one, it's gonna go on for years. They're one of the top research institutions in the world. So I think they're really gonna be leading things for the next several years in our understanding of all this stuff. You know, I, I agree and I've been following the research. Gimignol recently passed, I'm really sad about that. He was 
he was one that really understood myofunctional therapy. And, and I want to just say that word because the average um, person has no idea that there's a whole science and training on how to posture your tongue on the roof of your mouth, resting lightly with your teeth lightly meeting or slightly apart and your lips relaxed with no tension in the face then breathing through your nose and using your, utilizing that diaphragm, which is the major breathing muscles. I see patients come to me with TMJ problems, head and neck problems. They're all breathing here. And the tighter your muscles get here, your head starts to lurch forward and you, you create a forward head posture and you create a compromised airway to a point where if you're a child growing with that airway, you're your neck shape changes and then your, your airway keeps developing in that pattern. So if I get, like, I think I've been a therapist, a myofunctional therapist for eight years now, on top of being a PT that knows head and neck TMJ alignment and all that, I would used to get my, my patients back here. To, to, they're all here. I want to get them back here with manual work, with postural work, with stretching, with, but they always pop back here why because this is an airway position it's like cpr you you extend the neck to try to get the airway open so what is myofunctional it's the throat training obviously if you use your body correctly you don't need any of this right it's when you have a low tongue posture and your throat collapses your soft palate collapses and then you're stuck in this position to just breathe not that you know it the majority of people have no idea that they're in that position because you know everybody now is doing work at computers and they're here and you can't really tell right <laughs> but it's it's one of the fields that i hope people will start understanding that you know dentists orthodontists any anybody with needing braces they're not positioning their tongue properly inside their mouth with their lips sealed you know, the, the braces are tongue posture and lip seal, and that's natural braces, like the skulls you see so many years ago, their mouths were closed, you know? I, I agree with you. When, when you think of how braces, so I've been victim of, of, the, of all this stuff, right? I grew up on completely soft industrial foods. I was mouth breathing a lot, hanging out, you know? like this. So, so I had braces, I had extractions, I had wisdom teeth removed, I had headgear. I've had it all. So, so I'm, I'm just like most, most people of, of my, my age, my generation. This, is, this was just the standard stuff that was, when are you, it wasn't if you were going to get braces, when are you going to get braces? You know, yeah. I knew some people that, that would get two sets of braces oh, they'd yeah. get them early and teeth would come out. Then, then they'd get them again. And if you think about how how mad that is. It's, it's absolutely nuts that they're not looking at how the face is going to be growing, how the mouth is going to be growing. They're only looking at the straightness of the teeth through two separate phases of growth. So I, it, to me, this isn't an, and something that I thought was, was so interesting researching this stuff. This was not a huge leap of logic to say this doesn't make sense. Yeah. It was so obvious. Like, why do we have crooked teeth? Why did our ancestors have straight teeth? Why would braces be a bad idea at certain stages in someone's yeah. development as opposed to expanding? There's obviously when you expand a mouth and you make more room for that mouth for teeth to grow naturally straight, 
you're going to be expanding the airway. It's not a not a leap of logic there. So um, that that's what I think really connected me with the subject and what has connected readers as well, where everyone's just kind of like, of course, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all there, but, but the pieces like, like Christian Guillemot, I never know how to say his last name. I don't think anybody does, <laughs> but, but here's a guy at Stanford who had been doing this stuff for 50 years. So if anyone denies these claims, you can look at his, what, thousand research papers at Stanford if, if you want to check it out. And, and I certainly was rifling through those for, for months and months and absolutely astounded that I didn't know about this, that my parents didn't know about it, and, and that so much of the general population could really benefit from, from this knowledge. It's just not everybody's reading the same material. That's the problem. It's like, we're, we, and everybody's too busy doing their own thing. So it's piecemeal here, piecemeal. I have so many complaints that patients are, can you talk to my dentist? Can you connect it? And I'm, I'm one to try. And I get a team of people because it takes a team to really help airway patients. Mm -hmm. I obviously cannot make appliances and sometimes they're really important. Um, I want to, I just want to touch on your study. Okay. Mm -hmm. I had a deviated septum surgery a year and a half ago and I was plugged not because I wanted to be and I didn't have it packed, but it was drainage and congestion after th three days of surgery, I could not breathe through my, my nose. And it was awful. Like I was miserable. You did this at Stanford with one other person. Can you share a little bit about that to the audience? Sure. So, so we know just from Harvold's work and so many other studies, we know that mouth breathing is bad news. And there's no controversy about that. Bringing in this unhumidified air that is, um, you know, uh, that is, can be cold or warm depending on the environment. Uh, it hasn't had its particulate and other, other, uh, other allergens removed from it. Exposing our lungs to that is, is bad news. No one's, no one's gonna argue, but nobody knew how quickly the, the damage from mouth breathing would, would come on. So I had talked to Dr. Jayakar Nayak, who's the chief of rhinology research at Stanford, many, many times. We went out to lunch, we just, I talked about his work, fascinated with the nose. He's like, it's such this underappreciated organ. No one's studying it, but it's tied to so many other functions in our body from hormone release to autonomic nervous system, on and on and on. And I said, well, you know, why don't we test um, the difference between nasal breathing and, and mouth breathing? Um, and he thought it would be unethical to do that because he knew how injurious mouth breathing was. Um, so I volunteered. I said, well, do it on me. Then you don't have to convince someone to do it. I'm volunteering and that's fine. And uh, I got someone else because having just an N1 study might be interesting, but it's a lot more powerful if you have two people. Yep. So uh, for, for 21 days, we were in this study and, and 10 of those days, almost 11 of those days, uh, we spent with silicon up our noses um, and measured, I won't bore you with all the measurements we did, three times a day, yeah. every single day. We did PFTs, we had continuous blood glucose, we had CO2, nitric oxide, O2, you, you name it. The uh, blood, blood pressure, pressure. The, the ones that are important, right? The blood pressure, the heart rate, that, that keep going because what yeah. you learned from this was amazing. Yeah, and so we knew that something was going to happen, right? But nobody knew what. Nobody, nobody had studied this. And it's so ironic that I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm studying this at Stanford. <laughs> you figure, like, 
maybe some other researchers would have done this in the last hundred years. Anyway, so it is is what it is. Um, and the first night we went from not snoring at all. Uh, we had taken baseline data for about a week, week to 10 days. And my snoring was either zero or about three or four minutes a night out of eight hours. Not, not too bad. First night I snored hour and a half. Within three nights, I was snoring four hours through the night. We both got sleep apnea. My blood pressure went through the roof. Uh, went up about 15 points, just right right from the get-go. Uh, it wavered. You know, some some mornings was a little lower than the afternoons, but, but overall, huge increase. Uh, we felt fatigued, uh, dry mouth, uh, irritable, anxious. Heart rate variability just, just sunk immediately that's the balance of nervous system and uh we felt just totally awful but but so much worse than we thought the the, the good news and this this is just like harvold's monkeys when he took when harvold took out the silicon these monkeys recuperated they learned how to nasal breathe again their faces started morphing back their airways started opening yeah. and the same thing happened with us first night snoring went down about six or seven hundred percent um from four hours to about 18 minutes uh or 23 minutes for me within two nights zero uh zero sleep apnea blood pressure went down about 10 to 15 points at my highest um during mouth breathing i was really high like almost scary scary point about 165 on systolic towards the end of the nasal breathing i was down to 125 122 this is by breathing nothing we ate the same exact foods at the same exact times we got really into this through through both <laughs> stages it's like oh yeah. it's time to eat the same exact portion of the same food so yeah. there were no other exterior influences here zero is in the same room i was in this downstairs in my house i mean that's that's what it did so you know if nasal breathing can restore someone that quickly in 10 days imagine what it could do in 10 weeks or 10 months or years um yeah. having your body able to do instead of constantly fighting off inflammation and battling stuff to do what it naturally wants to do to yeah. heal you and allow you to go further and and faster and that was the most important lesson i learned these people who and you're still going to find people in the medical community i found them who said how we breathe does not matter you take in breath your body does everything and which to a certain extent is true our bodies will compensate because they're going to keep us alive right compensation doesn't mean health like i can walk if i have a broken ankle I can still walk. I'm not going to walk very far. I'm, right. It's going to hurt while I'm doing it. And I really think breathing can be viewed of as, as the same. Why just get by when you can optimize this and obviously reap the benefits? You know, the, the one section of the book that you spoke about emphysema patients, that, that struck me because, you know, these, these patients are kind of left to kind of die with oxygen and, and, and like no guidance mouth open. Can you share a little bit about that? Because I know that, that, that there's emphysema pa patients have not the greatest lungs, but not all of the lungs are damaged. And it's like we forget about those, those parts of the lungs. Can you share a little bit about that? That was really interesting. Sure. So after World War II, and especially in the, in the 50s, when everyone was smoking, emphysema was a serious problem. And the VA hospitals on the East Coast were packed full of emphysema patients, and they had no idea what to do with these people. They'd hook them up to oxygen, put them on a bed, sometimes all in the same ward, I've seen pictures of this, pump them up with antibiotics if they got infections, 
and, and leave them there to die. And, and this is how it had been done for years because people are like, once you have emphysema, you can't develop the lungs or the diaphragm. This was the medical belief. Yeah. So what can you do with these people? Here's, you know, here's your TV dinner and, and we're just going to wait for you to die. They even thought that emphysema, they would uh, help these people by putting a pillow in their back. So they were arched up like this. Even though if they, if someone had done a little research, you'd find when you take a breath in, some of the chest inhales and inflates, but most of that is happening in the back. Right. So if you've got a pillow on your back, you are further inhibiting their ability to take a free breath of air. So this guy, it took a coral conductor to figure this out. He had developed this, this way to help singers sing better by, by breathing better. Everything we speak and sing is on the exhale. Uh, you can feel as it's very hard to talk on the inhale when you can't yeah, sing on the inhale, impossible. Right. And he found if he was able to extend these exhales to build the diaphragmatic movement so it could go a little further up, and thus would be able to go a little further down. So longer, deeper breaths. Found it had a stunning effect on his singers. They went on to win these competitions. He worked at the Met Opera and helped opera singers sing even better. So after doing this for 10 years, he was called by the VA hospitals, by the administration that was dealing with respiratory pathologies like, like emphysema. And, and they said, why don't you take a swing at, at helping these people? And so by only teaching them how to engage that diaphragm, because they had completely lost the ability to breathe properly, which meant their diaphragmatic movement was about 10%. And if you see emphysemics, they breathe like this. Yeah. There's tension in their neck. Yep. Yeah, because they've lost, it's called respiratory fault. Their bodies have started to develop to these poor breathing habits. And the body needs to get air in no matter what, even if it starts contorting your body. So he had taught them to lower their shoulders, to lay down, to breathe these very deep breaths, and to slowly develop the diaphragm. He was scolded by the professionals there who said, you cannot develop diaphragmatic movement. You can't do this. So they started taking x-rays, and they started taking films of these people. and. Who would have guessed he was developing diaphragmatic movement? So he stayed in the VA system for 10 years and helped thousands and thousands of people. One of the amazing things about writing a book is I've heard from a few of these people uh, who had been helped by this guy. And, uh, and they were convinced he was going to forever be forgotten uh, in history. Um, and, and he basically has. Once he left the system, it all went away. And they started treating emphysemics the same exact way as they had been doing it before. And in some ways, they, they still are, which That's is one great. of those things where you're just like, what is going So I, this pattern, I, kept see I was not looking for these stories. Uh, people are thinking, oh, you're trying to find these weird outliers. Right. I was looking at everybody. And the same exact pattern happened with this lady, uh, Katerina Schroth, yes. who had scoliosis as a kid. She was like, here's your brace, here's your wheelchair, that's your life. Through stretching and breathing, she breathed her spine straight again. True, there's pictures. And then she taught thousands of women to do the same thing. She was derided. She was trying to, they tried to stop her from doing this. She said, forget it, I'm going to do it anyway. At the end of her life, she lived to be 91. She was expected to live much shorter because right. of scoliosis. And she was awarded a medal by the German government for her contributions to medicine. So, 
sometimes these things take 20, 30 years to catch up. And the yeah. only thing you can do is to keep plugging away. And finally, there's going to be a moment where everything's going to switch, that paradigm shift that Thomas Kuhn talks about in Scientific Revolutions. That's what it takes. And part of me thinks from the outpouring I'm getting from what you're hearing that, that hopefully we're at this other movement to a greater realization and appreciation of breathing. I appreciate that. You know, we have two Shroth um, PTs in our clinic, so I'm aware of that technique. And I need to, I need to also bring in what I've learned from my training to them, because I think collaboration is where it's at. You know, it, it, we have to keep growing as a field. And the fact that kids are snoring, kids are mouth breathing, people just keep making that normal, you know, it's, it's not okay. And it, and we really have to learn from people that have taken the time to do all this research. You have it so well written in this book. And I think anyone that ha wants to be healthier should read this book because it's a compilation of many research um, projects, old manuscripts. I mean, you were, you were dating things from 400, 400 BC and it's all about the same stuff. So I'm, I'm hoping that this will help people open their eyes and realize if you're a child, this is what I tell my, my parents, if, you're a if your child is having narrow jaws, do something now. And, and it's not just working with a dentist, you've got to train the breathing. So um, if you had advice to anybody that's dealing with breathing problems, James, what would you tell them now that you've learned all this and, and that you've been even a patient yourself? What would you tell them? I tell them to, to go to a professional who has who studied this stuff specifically. Um, and that includes a lot of people have, have chronic sinusitis, nasal issues. Uh, some ENTs uh, do not appreciate or, or even understand the properties of breathing as well as others. And, and I think I can say that knowing how many people who have gone in to fix their noses and actually came out and, and with, with noses that, that were much worse. So it's just like anything else. There's, there's good people, there's bad people. Um, uh, not as though their intention is good or bad, but there are people that, that have studied the, the proper science of the stuff and looked at it. But there's so many breathing issues that it's hard to give one blanket uh, piece of advice. Uh, I would I would just say you know more more than anything. Be, even uh, I was just a little side note uh, talking with someone about insomnia and mm -hmm. how so much of insomnia is not a psychological problem. It's a breathing issue. And the Mayo Clinic did an incredible study on this just a couple of years ago. All, this is all available on, on my site. So don't listen to me, listen to Mayo Clinic and these people who have studied this stuff for, for years. And, and that's where I got this information. I would have no story if people hadn't been working on this stuff for decades and decades and, and really collecting the science um, on, on the best way to, to breathe. So I guess the, the advice would be, um, don't just get by with, with breathing. You want to optimize this. And as Nyack at Stanford told me, if a sink is clogged in your house, you're going to find a way of clearing it immediately. And your airways, especially your nose, has to be considered in the same way. You want to nasal breathe. You want to breathe freely. We do this 25,000 times a day. It's a bad idea to struggle 25,000 times a day. It's going to break your body down. And the benefits of healthy breathing are patent. Look at look at Schroth, look at Stow, 
Look at Wim Hof. I mean, I could give you a, a dozen other that they're all in the book, but, uh, but we, we know how transformative it can be. One last thing about what you said, 25,000 breaths a day. Do you know, I, I have a little machine that's called a capnometer. It measures CO2 and breath rate. And you, 25,000 is normal, okay? I have patients breathing 60,000 times a day improperly. So it, it's not like people are unaware and I think it's partly because we're so, at least Americans, you know, I lived in Europe for a few years and it was a totally different culture there. And, and people really took their time and even like meals were, they, they treasure their meals with their friends and coffee breaks and you just don't bring work and you relax, right? So I think the, the American culture is go, 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 not enough time for you know, rest and relaxation and enjoyment all the time and not enough time to make sure your kids are developing because you're, you're too busy or there's, they're overscheduled. And it's part, partly all of that too. And I just, this is over breathing and, you know, I'm a buteco breathing instructor. So I've helped many that huff and puff and yawn and you hear their breathing all day long. You know, I would have never said, take a deep breath in, like you said, that the opera singer says to do, because that's not what we say in Buteco. And it's always, I hear it and I'm like, oh, I'm open. I'm open because that diaphragm was moving and it wasn't going to move without that. So everybody's different. You have to treat breathing differently. You, you have to. And, and that's why, to me, having more tools in the toolkit is only a good thing. Someone who has chronic asthma and anxiety, they shouldn't be, be doing that. I, I get it. But someone who has autoimmune issues and, or, or someone who is already balanced, who wants to go up that next rung of potential, those breathing practices, the, the Wim Hof, the Tumo, the Pranayama, the Kriyas, it is backed uh, by, by a lot of solid science, 60 different studies for Kriya alone of how beneficial it is. You have to, but, but it's not a one size fits all thing for everyone. I do think, having said that, everyone can benefit from nasal breathing. Yep. Everyone can benefit from breathing slower, turning those 25,000 breaths to, a day to, you know, ancient Chinese said 13,000. That's the number they actually sat around and counted it. So if you think about 13,000, that's nine breaths a minute, which to me, from what I know, it's going to be much easier on your body to yeah. breathe at nine breaths a minute than 18. So, so, you know, it's, it, it just depends on, on who you are, what you're looking out of it. But we do know that there is a foundation, nasal breathing, slower breathing, and for almost everyone breathing less than you think you need to will actually be giving you more, more oxygen to your tissues, muscles, and everything. James, I could talk to you forever. I so appreciate your time, and I hope I can interview you in the future. I know you're, you're going to keep going with this. I know that there's more to learn about the breathing, and I'm really excited that you spent the time and all those years. This book is amazing. Please, please read it, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Esther. Thank you so much for being here with us, James. Thanks for your Thanks. time. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Breathing Lab with Dr. Jenny. 